invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. If you're using one of the Bibles here, you should find that on page 586. And as you turn there, just a, some uh, words of introduction to uh, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, the prophet Isaiah is one of uh, my favorite prophets. I'm not sure if we're allowed to have favorites, but um, Isaiah himself was so consumed and so centered upon God himself and the glory of God. It, it defined everything that he did, he said, and he wrote. In fact, if you recall in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is brought up into the heavenly temple where he sees the Lord seated upon his throne and the train of his robe filling the temple. And he hears the seraphim, the angels, singing in the, in the presence of God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that second stanza, the whole earth is full of his glory, became a kind of key that unlocked the meaning of everything for Isaiah on the earth. And so if you read through the prophet Isaiah, he incorporates everything from the mountains to Assyrian armies uh, to feasting to convey the riches of God's grace that comes to us in the gospel. Nothing was off limits. Everything was brought to serve the glory of God in Isaiah's mind and as he conveys it through his words. And so here in Isaiah chapter 25, we come uh, to this marvelous depiction of, of the end to which the gospel that God has given us, the good news, is leading us, where it brings us to. Not just a matter of our sins being forgiven and that's it, but our sins being forgiven in order that they might bring us before the table that God has laid out, a table of rich abundance, of rich foods, of richest wines, as you read about here in Isaiah 25. And so this chapter is truly marvelous, truly glorious, and it teaches us then where true thankfulness comes from and where it is ultimately going. So Isaiah chapter 25, we'll read the whole chapter. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and true. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat, from the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, 
as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. It's especially uh, verse uh, 6 that we're going to be focusing upon, though we'll consider the whole chapter. And just to read it one more time. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you think about the good news that the Bible proclaims to us and we hear uh, each week, uh, the news that in Jesus Christ we find the forgiveness of our sins, in Jesus Christ we find new life that we might live for him, when we think about the good news, what metaphor, what picture uh, comes to mind? Not only what is the gospel, but in, in a sense, what is the gospel like? And what might, we, what might we liken the gospel unto? And I think it's very important that we notice that throughout the scriptures, when God delivers and saves his people, the response is not one of being dour, and it's not one of God's people now sulking, of course, right? But the picture throughout the Bible, that when God saves a people, he brings them into a feast. He brings them into the, a, a rich banquet that he himself lays out before them as a token, as a symbol of his goodness, his graciousness, the abundance that he provides for his people. I mean, this very reality of who God is, right, as gracious and as, as abundant in goodness is not something that came about later on, but it was, we see from the very beginning of the Bible, he creates this beautiful, luscious garden full of trees that are good for eating. And it's after the fact that he created the garden first, right? Then he takes the man that he made and he places the man in the garden. After the fact, he's already made this bountiful place in which he can enjoy the goodness of God. And he's given this command, you may enjoy and eat of every tree of the garden. Now, God prohibited one tree, a single tree. But from the very beginning, we see that God was so abundant in his goodness that when God brings a people to himself, he lavishes upon them all of his goodness, withholding nothing back. And so then, though man sinned against God, spurning his goodness, spurning the riches of his grace, and even given to them, God pursues and God saves and God brings back a people to himself. And again, throughout the scriptures, when God brings a people, a sinful people, back to himself, he doesn't do so to then put them in a dungeon. He doesn't bring them back to put them uh, just in a meager position or a lowly place. But he brings them back to his table to feast with him. And Isaiah lays it out as in terms of a rich feast, right? A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, food full of marrow. It's a wonderful, incredible feast that God lays out. And so when we think about God's saving work, we're to think about the fact that God is bringing us into the riches of his goodness. And that's why the Bible will use this metaphor, of a feast, 
uh, when it speaks about what is ours in Jesus Christ. And, and it speaks about that in contrast to our situation in our sin and the kind of food we enjoy in our sin. Because in our sin and misery, we are famished, we are empty, we're always hungering and, and seeking to be satisfied. We see this, for example, in Psalm 107. There it speaks about how the Lord pursued various peoples throughout the face of the earth. And he speaks of some people, as it says in Psalm 107, who wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he feeds with good things. Right? And, and, and so we see this wonderful contrast that God has taken us from hungry and thirsty. From, from trying to fill ourselves up with everything in this world but nothing ever really satisfying. Now to being brought to his table. To know that it's God alone who can satisfy us. That is why the good news is indeed good news. The good news is an invitation to the feast that God lays out for us, his people. And so, of course, in light of Thanksgiving Day being this Thursday and many of us looking forward to a table full of turkey and stuffing and all ham and whatever else you might have. If you're Italian, you might have some lasagna uh, at your table like mine might have. Um, And we look forward to that feast. And in many ways, these feasts that we enjoy here on earth are but a pale comparison to the feast that God lays up for us ultimately in his holy dwelling in his mountain as Isaiah speaks of. And so when we begin to think about God's grace, his goodness towards us, we are not to think about uh, something small but something large. I know the children here, it's turning into uh, hot cocoa weather, right? And so you look forward to a cup of hot cocoa. And I know most of you would take a much larger cup than mom and dad often want to give you, probably too much sugar in it for you. But right, the, the bigger the cup, the better. And that should be our mindset, our mentality when we come before and think about what God has given us in Jesus Christ. No cup can fill the amount that God has given to us. And so let's think about Isaiah 25 uh, under a couple points here. Uh, First, in verses 1 through 5, we see that um, God's people are gratefully subdued by God's grace. And then in the following verses, they are gratefully satisfied by God's gospel. So subdued by God's grace and then satisfied by God's gospel. And so in these opening verses, and verses 1 through 5, uh, we're kind of caught up in the midst of Isaiah's prophecy. So we just jumped into the midst of it. But if you were to read chapter 24, the previous chapter, you would see that God's judgment is being un- uh, poured out upon the whole earth. Um, it's really in again, as a very stark contrast to the joy that we read about here in Isaiah 25. In Isaiah 24, it's as if the entire earth is undergoing a cosmic earthquake, causing everything that was secure and stable, especially the cities that people sought refuge in, are now uh, tumbling, and, and they're now crumbling, and they're now breaking down and shaking, because the Lord 
is coming in judgment against the whole earth. And the reason is because they have continued in their pride, in their arrogance before the Lord. They've trusted in themselves. They've looked to their own hands. They have not thanked the Lord, but they have thought that it was by their own strength and power that they have received all good things. And so in the midst of this world that is undergoing God's judgment, the people of God uh, utter up a, a, a psalm. A song of thanksgiving and a song of praise because in the midst of God's judgment, God preserves a humble people who give him thanks. In the midst of God's judgment, he preserves a remnant who will be established, not in the cities of this world that will tumble and break down, but as he describes for us, especially in the next chapter, 26, in the very city of God that he leads us into. And so God's judgment comes among the entire world as an anticipation of what is to come, of course, when Christ comes again. Isaiah chapters 24, 25, 26, in many ways will be echoed later in the book of Revelation as we think about the future, what is to come. And it reminds us that when Jesus Christ comes again, his judgment will be over the whole earth. And all who have continued in their sin, And all who have continued to rebel against the King of Kings uh, will at that time no longer be able to do so. Uh, But judgment will come. But that's not the focus, of course, of Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 focuses on God's people in the midst of that judgment. Those who have trusted in his Christ. Those who have looked to him by faith and have humbled themselves before him. It's them that begin to have these great words of of comfort uh, spoken to them. And so as we read about in these opening five verses, we, we, we hear echoed in them as God subdues the nations. We see, of course, the establishment of Christ as king. In many ways, reflected in these opening five verses is the prophecy of Psalm 2. That as the nations rage and the kings plot and the people's plot in vain, God sits in the heavens and laughs. And he says in the midst of all of their raging and all of their um, arrogance and all of their pride, God establishes his son on his holy mountain. And that language of the mountain is very significant even here in Isaiah. It's the place where God dwells. And of course, the mountain spoken of here. It's not an earthly mountain, but a heavenly one. It is Mount Zion, upon which God has established his son, Jesus Christ, even today. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven as if ascending a mountain, and there dwells as ruler in Mount Zion in the city of God. And so, as we read here about God graciously, or rather subduing uh, the nations, we know that it points us and looks forward to him doing so in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did so, of course, in a very humble way, in a way that was mysterious and hidden from the world. He did not establish his son and subdue the nations by raising up a stronger nation or a more powerful army or a more persuasive leader, but rather he subdued the nations and established his son on Mount Zion through his humble death on a cross. That's why it was hidden from the eyes of the world that know nothing but power, 
that know nothing but strength, that know nothing but force, God, under their radar, establishes his king through the humble work of Jesus Christ, submitting himself to his Father's will, and ultimately to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as Paul reminds us, because of his humility, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. And and so we see that reality reflected for us here as God subdues the nations that that, that um, oppressed and persecuted and hunted down the very people of God, God subdues them ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so this reality that Isaiah looks forward to is one that we know in part today. Jesus Christ is king. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And yet we still await for his coming again in which his reign and his rule and the nations themselves will finally be brought in subjection fully and completely to him. And so already we begin to see with deep thankfulness in our hearts what God is doing. He has done what we could not do, what helpless, weak people could not do. He has subdued those who would oppress and those who would persecute us in his son, Jesus Christ. He has done what we could not do. He's established his son on his holy hill, on Mount Zion, where he is today reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we are his people. And we are citizens of his kingdom today already. And therefore we are to walk by faith and not by sight, trusting God's word as a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, revealing this reality to us and trusting that God's word as he has spoken it is true as it is recorded for us here in Isaiah 25 and throughout the scriptures as well. So God has subdued the nations for which we are thankful and grateful. And not only, secondly, as we move into our second point, has God subdued the nations and will subdue the nations in Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, And for that, we are to be thankful. But more than that, God, as he subdues the nations, not only removes sort of external threats from us, right? It's not as if God just takes away that which hurts us or that which oppresses us, that which causes tears to flow down our eyes, right? Or our cheeks out of our eyes, right? It's not merely that, but God also now positively bestows upon his people the riches of this great banquet, within his city walls, right? He subdues those outside of us, but then he also positively makes us gratefully satisfied by his gospel. And so here in verses six through uh, nine, uh, we begin to see that reality. An invitation goes out in which God himself um, lays out this rich banquet. Notice verse six again. On the mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well refined. And so as we think about the fact that this meal, this feast takes place on God's mountain, right? On On this mountain, we recognize again that the mountain that is spoken of here is no earthly mountain that we go in pilgrimage to today. It's not the point. 
but rather it is God's heavenly place of dwelling. It is Mount Zion. And when we think about Mount Zion, when we think about the place of God's dwelling, his abode, what comes to mind? Right? If you were to say, if somebody were to ask you, what is the place of God's dwelling like? How might you describe that place? We get a wonderful description. I'm not going to try myself. But we get a wonderful description in Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews 12, we are taught that the place of God's dwelling is one of great festivities and feasting. And and that's how we ought to think about the place of God's dwelling, his holy mountain. Notice what it says in Isaiah uh, chapter, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Speaking to the church, it says, you have come, and you might say, well, to Mount Zion. You might say, well, how have we come to Mount Zion? In Christ. Earlier in Hebrews, he speaks of Christ as our forerunner. He's gone into heaven as our anchor. A lot of different metaphors to say that in Christ, we are already there, and yet we will be there in fullness when Christ brings us there in resurrected bodies. But already today, he says, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and as the centerpiece, as the crown jewel of this city, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Right, so as we think about approaching the dwelling place of God, right, it is not a place, again, where people are sad or people are quiet or people are, have a frown or whatever it might be, dour, but it's a people rejoicing. How could they not rejoice? It is the Lord's presence that they are in. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, they belong only in the presence of God, in his holy mountain. In the midst of all of the joy and the rejoicing, in the midst of all of the gladness and all of the happiness, God, it says in Isaiah 25, will make for all peoples, we'll say more about that in a moment, for all peoples a feast of rich food, A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. What a marvelous thing to think about. That God himself is the one who makes this wonderful feast. It's God himself, as we come into his presence, is not one who needs our service, but one who glorifies himself out of his abundance by providing for us. A feast. Again, it tells us um, many things and wonderful things about the character of our God. He's not one who is to be served as if he needs anything, but rather out of his fullness, out of his self-sufficiency, out of his own abundance, he makes for his people a feast. And this feast then begins to bring us into the heart of the bond of friendship, the covenant we have with him. 
as he provides us with this covenant meal. One commentator had spoken of this as the covenant sealed in a banquet. This is the the, the bringing together of I will be your God, you will be my people. The, The friendship of the Lord, as Psalm 25 speaks of, that being brought to its fullness of enjoyment as God provides for us. In many ways, this was looked forward to from long ago. If you remember when God made the covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, that Moses and the elders had ascended the mountain. And it's quite interesting that when Moses and the elders ascended the mountain to meet with God, it says in in Exodus chapter 24 that they beheld God and ate and drank. Right? They had a meal with their God. And, And the great anticipation, the longing of God's people was not that just Moses and the elders would ascend God's mountain to to feast with him, but that the whole of God's people would have right of access to come, not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, to enjoy a true feast with God. And this, again, is the invitation that goes out with the gospel. It is an invitation to this feast, to enjoy the goodness of God and to find him to be our all in all. And this, Isaiah says, this invitation will be for all peoples. As he gathers the people from all nations, every tribe, every people, as he talks about in the following verses, and he will begin to gather them, and they will flow upward toward God's heavenly dwelling on his holy hill. And so as the gospel goes out and goes out to all people indiscriminately, calling them to come and feast on what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Come and to feast on him. Come into the fullness of the friendship of the Lord, which is at the heart of his covenant. I think it's also why we see not only uh, as the old covenant is established with Moses and the elders, that they feast with God, but also when Jesus establishes the new covenant in his blood, right? He does so at the Passover, and he reminds them that they will eat this again in his kingdom when, they, when he comes into it, right? Again, the, the connection between feasting and God's covenant, I will be your God, you will be my people, they go hand in hand. Because to have God as our God and to be his people is to sit down at table with him. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, right, as a renewal of that covenant bond we have with the Lord, The Lord's Supper testifies not only to the future reality that is ours, that future banquet that is ours in heaven with the Lord, but even a taste of that banquet becomes ours today in Christ. That as we partake of Christ by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, not carnally as if the bread and the wine become Christ, but spiritually as we feed on Christ, we find nourishment for our souls Because we're nourished not with the things of this world, but of the heavenly realities that belong in Mount Zion with Christ himself. And so as we think about approaching the Lord's table, we recognize that we are brought even into now that heavenly banquet and feast that God will give to his people. And all the more grateful we are to be because... As God brings us into this feast, he reminds us in these verses that follow from this, 
that death will no longer be an impediment. Right? We, we can think about a great feast, right? You can think about Thanksgiving Day, and that meal ends, right? It comes to an end, the day ends, every holiday ends, right? And, and, and the joy of that day just dissipates over time. And eventually, right, even in the, the fact that death itself will one day take from us all things. Death is an enemy. But notice what goes on to say in Isaiah, that, that death will not be a problem or an enemy any longer on God's holy mountain. That, that it is a feast unending. That it is the eternal enjoyment of God forevermore, world without end. Right? That's what this is serving. Not just the fact that we don't want to deal with death, but the fact that death is removed that we might enjoy God positively, fully, forever. Notice what he says. Not only on this mountain will God make a feast, but he will also, as it says in verse 7, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. As God brings us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, to his holy city, we find their life everlasting. We find death no longer an enemy, but an enemy that has been subdued and conquered and crushed. One that no longer has any effect on God's people, to rob us of joy and to rob us of good things. The feast that we enjoy in the heavenly city will be one that is forever, one that is unending. What a marvelous thing to think about. And one that's often too lofty, too great for our minds really to comprehend. In many ways, it's too good to be true. And yet it is true because God has spoken it. He will make a feast And he will swallow up death forever. And we will dwell in his city with eternal joy. Unending, praising him and thanking him from this time forth and forevermore. In all the literalness of that statement. It's not just a metaphor of a long time, but truly forever. Unending. That is our lot. That is the good news that comes Right? As, as God, and, and again, all of this comes to us in Jesus Christ. Right? We saw how God subdues the nations in his son. And God makes a feast and, and, and swallows up death forever in his son. And so all of this then redounds to the glory of Jesus Christ. And then it fills our hearts with thankfulness to him. He has subdued our enemies whom we could never subdue. He's given us a feast that we could never lay out. And he has swallowed up death forever again, something that we could never do. And therefore, what can we respond with other than thank you? What do we have that we could offer up in in repayment for this? There's nothing but our hearts in thankfulness to God and saying, thank you, Lord, for this great gift. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for the feast that is mine in him. And then that moves us in all of life. And so I want to just conclude with a few ways that this does move us with thankfulness in our hearts. First, as we are thankful to the Lord for this, it teaches us to rest in the friendship of the Lord. And I use the language, the friendship of the Lord, to get at the heart of the covenant 
because God's word does that uh, in Psalm 25, verse 14. It says there that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. The friendship of the Lord and covenant are in parallel to one another. They, they interpret one another. The covenant is that bond of friendship God enters into with us sovereignly, and he accomplishes it and brings it about through the death and resurrection of his son. And so then, let us then, as we with grateful hearts rest in the friendship of the Lord. To be reminded of that, to be a friend of the world, is to be an enemy of the Lord. But to be a friend of God is true satisfaction. Secondly, as we are grateful to the Lord, let us be reminded that we have a taste of that meal today, already, by faith, in the Lord's Supper. As we think about the Lord's Supper, we're to be reminded of this feast, that the, 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 um, the festivities that are already taking place in heaven itself. We're to be reminded of the words in Hebrews, you have come to Mount Zion. And so as we partake of this meal, we do so by faith, with our hearts raised and lifted up to that city. Because again, the crown jewel of that city is Christ himself. Our desire is there because Christ is there. And so we are already have a taste of that heavenly meal today by faith. Thirdly, with thanksgiving in our hearts, let us pursue the feast that is above. Let us pursue the feast that is above. There was a hymn, I'm not sure if it's a new or an old one, but I wrote the words down without the title. Uh, but with words that go like this, We forsake the feast above for all the crumbs below. Though you've made us sons and daughters, we do not the world disown. But may we find our greatest treasure that is, is in you alone. Right? And so the idea here is that we often forsake the feast above for the feast below. And let us not be satisfied and seek our satisfaction in the world below. And especially here, right, we look out, it's a lot of young people, a lot of ambition, a lot of desire, a lot of opportunity. And there's many things that we can begin giving ourselves to, which in themselves might, might be fine and good. But if we're giving ourselves to them, thinking that they will satisfy us, right? There's a longing, there's an emptiness, and we're saying, this might satisfy me, and I need more of this and more of distractions. And if that's where we're at, then we're forsaking the feast above and trying to satisfy us for really what's not even a feast below. It's, it's just crumbs. Um, it doesn't satisfy. But it was we seek the feast above with our minds set upon heaven. We are satisfied truly. And even as we look forward to what the book of Revelation speaks of as the marriage supper, the feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19, that is where our hearts must be. That is where we will find the fullness of satisfaction. And then finally, in light of the truths of Isaiah 25, let us live lives of exultant thankfulness. Let let thankfulness be the, the note that our lives strike. The tune in our every step, right? May that be what defines us as a thankful people. The opposite, if you want to know, is grumbling, of course, right? But let us be a people who are thankful. And as we are thankful, right, that means we're going to be filled with prayer, right? A thankless people is a prayerless people. But a thankful people, praise to the Lord, because we know that it all comes from him. And so let thankfulness be our song, as we sing to our God. And may thankfulness be that which moves us as we share this good news with the world around us. 
And as we invite those around us who, like in Psalm 107, are hungry and thirsty, may we, with joy in our hearts and thankfulness in every step, invite them, too, to the feast that God lays out for us. That they might no longer think of God as oppressive, as a tyrant, as one who withholds and keeps, but as one who generously provides and lavishes every good thing upon his people. May that define us as we live for his glory and look forward to sitting at his table, world without end. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a gracious God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you uh, that you in Jesus Christ have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, And that you have shown yourself not to be one who withholds, but one who gives, even gives himself. Father, we thank you that you are our portion, that we are your people. And Father, thank you for filling us uh, to full, even overflowing in Jesus Christ. May we be satisfied with him alone. And that we might then testify to this, uh, to the world around us as his people. So Father, accomplish these things by your word in our hearts, in our lives, in our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.